the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 4, Halloween 2018. Hello and welcome to the next in the series of podcasts and a happy Halloween to our listeners. Hello and uh, first on our list tonight is... Right, that was a bit Scooby-Doo. It was a bit it? Scooby-Doo. Uh, well. Nothing wrong with Scooby-Doo. I love Scooby-Doo. <laughs> uh, first on our list tonight is The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. This is one Simon's chosen. Uh, I'll let you introduce it. It is. I know you like a little bit of Victoriana. Yes. Um, and this is a TV show from Thames that ran for a couple of series in the early 70s. Um, and it was... Dramatizations of Victorian mysteries um, called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes because that's what these detectives were. Um, I really like this series. Um, I'm a, a bit of a fan of the old Victoriana myself. And the episode that we're going to watch is the only supernatural-ish one from the, um, the show. So it's a nice way to kick off our Halloween spooktacular. And it's the fifth episode from the first series from October 1971, and it's called The Horse of the Invisible. It was originally written by William Hope Hodgson, um, who wrote a series of, of short stories with a psychic investigator called Karnaki. And this is one of those stories. It stars Don Pleasance as Karnaki. And William Hope Hodgson is known for his weird fiction. He wrote um, books like The Boats of the Glen Carrig and uh, The House on the Borderland, which is a fantastic book if you like something slightly weird. Which Narrated by Jim Norton, I think, on radio. Oh, House on the Borderland. Yes, it was a a very creepy uh, um, reading, that. Yes. Possibly. I read the papery thing, so... (laughs) I think before we start, though, um, we have we need the next in our gin reviews. Absolutely. Today's gin is Larios. Now, I'm a big fan of Larios. Um, it was recommended to me by a lovely lady in Liverpool by the name of Ursula, uh, who I know through the Ingress community because I multitask my geekery. And it's a Portuguese gin, and we're drinking tonight Larios 12, which is their 12-year age gin. And it is just beautifully smooth. Very easy to drink and quite potent. I'd go with that. And considering that you said that at the present time it's about 12 or £13 a bottle on Amazon. Or something like that. Um, that makes it cheaper than Gordon's. I mm. would far rather have that than Gordon's. Uh, what a delicious shit. It's getting four out of five from me. Yeah, I'd, I'd go with that. Four, possibly edging towards a five because it is one of my favourite gins. Gosh, yeah, that's the bit. I have to be really, really blown away for a five. But no, it's a, I'll, it's I'll bring, a good I'll bring four. some curio sometime. Curio Samphire gin is an amazing gin. Or oh, the honeybee gin. Honeybee gin is lovely and not particularly honeyish. There's anyway, so, so many gins, so little time. Uh, yeah, we've got plenty of time. <laughs> plenty of time and lots and lots of TV to watch. On the subject of which, the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. We'll see you on the other side. Okay, well that was the first of our Halloween episodes. Uh, the Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. The Horse of the Invisible by William Hope Hodgson. And it was odd. I mean, I couldn't work out for the first course of an hour whether it was supposed to be 
serious or a spoof, and it's clearly meant to be serious. It's a you know, there's a series of, of ghost stroke investigative stories. Well, actually, this is the only one in the series that's a ghost story. The the rest are pure investigative. I think it's it, Donald Pleasance as ever is as wonderful as he always in, is in in anything. Although he does, he comes very close to the immortal line: "Let me come with you. I can take see. me with you. I can see. I can see it perfectly." A very, very close. As the the ghost investigator that's called to investigate the haunting of this young woman, Michelle Detrice, by this seemingly invisible horse, it's only in the last five minutes, if that, you get some sort of decent explanation for what's going on. And even then, there's a ghost, a horse. Or is there? Or is there? Nothing's really resolved. Yeah, but it, uh, th- that's kind of the essence of a really good ghost story, isn't it? I um, maybe I've, I've watched too much Scooby Doo where there is actually a resolution. In this case, it did turn out to be somebody dressed up as a horse, plus an invisible horse. So you get to double your money. A little from this. column A, a little from <laughs> column B. <laughs> I enjoyed it because it as a term in terms of a, a period drama that was yeah. quite nice, particularly since it was ITV. Period um, historically. The BBC have always done these things better than ITV. That was quite nice. The one thing that stood out was that the OB work was done on video rather than film. As you pointed out while we were watching it, there was a bit of ghosting. It was only really in the night time. In the night time, which really were shot in the night. They weren't Mm. day for night. I think on balance, I would have preferred that to have been shot on film. Um, At the time, there there was a very good reason why... OB work was shot on film because of the the lighting and it just gave her a, a better effect. Um, but it, this is a, that's a very early example, and it worked very well. Uh, as I say, there, there was a bit of ghosting, but it's only a very little bit of ghosting, and there's a bit of foxing around the edge mm. on some of the shots, but mostly it worked well. What was that? Did you say seventy two? That was made seventy one, October seventy one. I've not watched anything that I can think of off the top of my head where OB work is done on video. So that's quite it's quite an early example of it. Most of it was done on film um, up until the mid-80s, really. Yeah. Um, but on the whole, I enjoyed it. It's, um, it's probably going to be worth watching some of the others in the series. They're all... There's a particular episode I've got in mind, but that will be yet to come. But for here and now... I think we head on with more Halloween. And what is next in our extravaganza? Right, the next thing we're going to watch is the first non-UK TV series that we're going to, we're going to cover. And we are taking a little side trip this Halloween to Ireland. Northern or the Republic? I said UK. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah. It's Northern Ireland. So right. we are going to air. Is this coming from uh, your Belfast days? This is where I first came across it, yes. It's an... RTE production, and it is called Podge and Rodge. They're Irish puppets. They're filthy. Oh, excellent. Oh, fantastic. Little five-minute segments (laughs) called A Scare at Bedtime. They do the occasional song for special occasions like Halloween and Christmas, and we're going to watch the Halloween one now. Um, But generally, they're just nasty little bedtime stories told by foul-mouthed puppets. I love it. It sounds very much like Michael Petit. It's incredibly entertaining. Um, I would be very, very surprised if you don't enjoy this. And 
I would be very, very surprised if we're not doing others. I, I suspect at least the Christmas one, because the Christmas song is just so much fun. So, we're not doing Christmas yet. We're doing Halloween. Um, so we're going to go on to Podger Roger, A Scare at Bedtime, the Halloween special. Rum VT. All Hallows Eve's upon us, the witching hour once more. Bonfires are a-burning, kids knocking on the door. Throwing hedgehogs on the bonfire and dressing up is lots of fun. Never stick a foreign object up your bum. No, you should never shove a banger up your arse and have a wee. It's not clever, it's not funny, some think it's quite obscene. You should never shove a banger up your arse and have a wee. Cause you'll only blow your hole to smithereens. Trick or treating, pumpkin eating, scary witch's cat. Better give us money, missus, or we'll dump on your doormat. Bobbin' apples, shagging cows, there's games for old and young. But don't stick a fern object up your bum all together. No, you should never shove a banger up your arse in Halloween. It's not clever, it's not funny, some think it's quite obscene. You should never shove a banger up your arse in Halloween. Cause you'll only blow your hole to smithereens. You! Your arse on Halloween It's not clever, it's not funny Some think it's quite obscene You should never shove a banger Up your arse on Halloween Cause you'll only blow your hole To smithereens <laughs> Happy Halloween So, how did you enjoy Your that first experience of Podge and Rodge? Wonderful <laughs> I'm going to have that bloody song in my head for weeks. No, loved it. I can't believe that's passed me by all these years. It's a good 20 years old, that episode now. I take it this is a big thing, or it was, or... Talk to anybody Irish, they'll know Podge and How long did it run for? No idea. Or are they sort of just seeped through the culture, or was this a uh, something that was big at the time and has since... Or do you not know? Um, I mean, 1998, I'd have been living in, in Belfast. Everybody I knew from the... The South was raving about it. And when we come on to the Christmas song, um, which I actually think is better than this one, when we come on to the, the Christmas song, um, my Northern Irish friends will sing that very loudly around Belfast, very drunk, around about Christmas. It's not universally popular. I wonder why. Is it not, not one to show your granny on Christmas Eve? My grandmother loved this. But yes, in, uh, he had a slightly more normal grandmother than I had, Yeah. So, and they probably wouldn't appreciate it too much. Oh, but that was wonderful. Um, you know, a nice little aside for Halloween. So what have we got coming up next? Right. The next thing that we're looking at is more typically Halloween-y. And we're going back to the 1960s to the um, mystery and imagination and we're going to watch the only surviving episode from the first series, which is their adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's story, The Fall of the House of Usher. And it was transmitted on the 12th of February, 1966, uh, adapted by David Compton and directed by Kim Mills. 
Well, that was Fall of the House of Usher. From Mystery and Imagination from 1966. And I misspoke a little earlier. There are actually two surviving episodes from the first series. I, I thought that the second one was, uh, survived from the second series. My first thought on that is it's typical Edgar Allan Poe stuff. Overblown with crazy characters in it. The cast... And a, there was a good casting. miserable ending. Oh, it was oh, the, the, from beginning to end, but that's typical Edgar Allan Poe. They're not, um, They're particularly not cheerful stories. No. Um, the one thing I would say is the cast, good though they were, were doing the best with a pretty awful script. I mean, you've got some big names in there: Susanna York and Denham Elliott. And actually, Denham Elliott returns a couple of seasons later as Dracula. I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to find something to say about that. That's that's positive. I mean, the set. Let's get the good stuff out. The, of the sets, way. The are sets were great. Um, they were, you know, very, very nice sets. And the opening shot of Madeline clawing away out of the coffin for 1966. That was bloody graphic. That was unpleasant to watch from the inside of a coffin, watching someone with bloody hands clawing and smashing the way out of wood, stumps left for fingers. That was unpleasant. The rest of it, I mean, Richard Beckett finds himself in this old house with two people who are barking mad and trying to kill everybody. Run away! Just don't stick Yeah, but when around. he tries to run away, then there's the, that massive storm. The character of Richard Beckett is a consistent character throughout each episode in the first two series. Even though it's not an anthology series, he... Provides a continuity. Well, it's amazing that Richard Beckett survives. It's one of the sort of people he surrounds himself with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Got the survivability of the typical Doctor Who companion. Well, um, <laughs> The odd thing is that the character of Lucy, so Richard's um, fiance, is completely invented for, the, um, for this adaptation and doesn't appear again in the anthology. But, or really serve or any practical purpose. Yeah. I mean, it's... A totally incidental character that disappears two-thirds of the way through. Madeline, played by Susanna York, is bonkers enough. I mean, how this seemingly well-screwed-down man, Richard Beckett, falls in love with a woman who is... A hot mess. A hot mess? Have you never heard yeah, that expression? Yeah, no, that's, I like that. A hot mess. Yeah, she is. I mean, Susanna York, yeah, looking good, but... You can't get away from the fact she's off a insane box. Um, and her brother's no better. And her brother nails her into a coffin to pretend that she's dead so that he'll bog her off so that he can have her to himself. And then when she does finally die, he, just, he literally screams the house down. Off its tits. Uh, that's not my... <laughs> just because something's old doesn't necessarily mean it's good. And that is true of Edgar Allan Poe. I really like Edgar Allan Poe, and I, I really quite enjoyed that. It's not often we disagree about, um, but I I enjoyed that. I found it very entertaining. The, the, the other surviving ATV edition, The Open Door, I'm less keen on. But we can give that a, a go next Halloween. Oh, what a joy. Yeah. <laughs> um, or one of the colour ones, because there, there are some very good colour adaptations. I mean, they've clearly put the effort in, but I, I think the source material could have probably done with a bit of a modern tweak on it. Um, because the the underlying story isn't a bad one. It's just the characters were so over the top. You've even got the, the stereotypical... You know, Igor! Gothic mansion with Igor and the storm raging outside. 
it's it's yeah, uh, but they're they're gothic cliches because they came from the gothic the, era. Yeah, this, this era. I mean, mystery and imagination with the um, the underlying character of Richard is all set in this time period. Mm. So so and they're all adaptations of Victorian era horror. Yeah, which at that point would have been what eighty years old. So the eighteen eighties would have been. Was it the 1880s for Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah. I could be wrong on that. Well, it's 140 then. But again, if you if you took that story and give it a bit of a modern polish, you could probably make something quite good out of that. As it stands, they've adapted it, and it looks like it's more or less as it is. With Or right, they've dropped in the superfluous character of Lucy for some reason, which only serves to make Richard Beckett yeah, and the whole, the, all the... But in Oxford, doesn't happen in there. No. So th- that's all there to crowbar in the, uh, the Richard Beckett character, which I think they did with a few of the other shows as well. There is one surviving snippet of the adaptation of Casting the Runes, if you want to have a little look at that. I think it's a couple of minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, we may as well. Right, run V2, let's have a look at that. Really, it was just an extract. That, I think, is the only thing that survives from season... First episode of season three. Who are we looking for? The conductor. Yes. Ron Pember. Oh, right. That's... Um, Ron Pember has cropped up in a few things. He's been... He was um, in a Red Dwarf episode, Better Than Life. He was the tax collector. And he was also in Doctor Who Slipback. He was one of the investigators. Okay. Casting the Runes was the first adaptation that didn't include the character of Richard Beckett. The Phantom Lover was this last episode. Probably went into a maximum security psychiatric home because of all the bonkers people that he kept falling in love with. Right, well, the next show we're going to be looking at is uh, one of the surviving episodes of Dead of Night. It is The Exorcism. Um, and this is the first episode of the series from the 5th of November 1972, uh, written and directed by Don Taylor. And Dead of Night was a horror anthology. And this is The Exorcism. Well, that was Dead of Night, The Exorcism, one of only three surviving episodes. Um, it was interesting, a little bizarre, but interesting. It's a very nicely mastered print, as you'd expect mm. from a release from the BFI. So it, we're probably seeing it in comparable quality to when it was first transmitted, mm. if not a bit better. Yeah. There are only really four performances in it. It's the story of um, two married couples who meet for Christmas dinner at the renovated country cottage belonging to one of the, the couples. And it all starts off pretty domesticated, mm-hmm. and then when it comes to serve the Christmas dinner, um, one of them tastes blood in the wine, none of them can eat the food. Some of the modern features that have been uh, put into the house start to fail, so the electricity fails, the phone fails, um, some of the shelving comes off the walls, and they're unable to leave. And then you get an incredible long exposition piece. A good 15 minutes. Of just one of the characters in a trance retelling the story of a previous owner of the house who, with her family family starved to death in the house and the reasons behind that. 
And for all, it's just one person with their eyes closed talking for 15 minutes. It's quite compelling. Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, and and there's a, it's a lot of exposition, but ghost stories tend to have mm. a lot of exposition because you can't really show a lot of the plot. And then there's some really quite gruesome mannequins showing the the previous occupants of the house after they've starved to death. And then you find that they, the four people who are in the house for this party have been discovered, despite all the food and drink that's in the place, starved to death. So it's not cheery. It's No, it's another one from this recording session that isn't cheery and ends... But it's Halloween, so it's supposed to be... Yeah, mm. fair enough. Mm. Well, you succeeded. The only thing missing is uh, a dark, stormy night when we're watching these things. Yeah, it was a nice bit of uh, a nice bit of TV. Again, as a, a piece in itself, it's it's a nicely contained piece. You have some nice set work again, as you'd expect from the BBC. Some nice location work. I don't really have a lot to say about it, to be honest. It was you recognised one of the well, Clive Swift is in it, uh, better known as Long Suffering Richard in Keeping Up Appearances. No, but you recognised Edward Petherbridge, who you've seen in other things, haven't you? Yeah, but I can put my finger on what I've seen him in before. And Anna Cropper as well, I recognise. And I can't remember what, what else she's been in. So yeah, that, that's sort of a, a halfway point between Halloween and Christmas, really. So I don't know whether it should have been a, a Christmas story. Although I'm glad we didn't do that at Christmas, to be honest. It, and we've got plenty of we, Christmas yeah. stuff to look at when the time comes. Hopefully something more cheery than that. Hello everyone, Ken here. It's time for another dip into my own personal archive. This time it's the first part of an interview with Robert Sherman, the writer from Doctor Who, among other things. Uh, famous for the episode Dalek, broadcast in Christopher Eccleston's first season in 2005. This interview was one that I recorded at the Cavern Club in Liverpool. It was a special event called Who at the Cavern, hosted by the Wirral Doctor Who fan group, Fans Like Us. And the interviewer is Brian Gorman. Right, okay, we'll kick off. Uh, Rob, you're a writer. So, mm-hmm. when you were a little Robette, yes. uh, watching Doctor Who on yes. telly, yeah. what did you think? Did you think, one day I want to write for that? Or did you think, one day I want to act in it? So, no, I'm crap at acting, so I'll write for it. I did, I did want to be an actor, actually. Um, but I'm rubbish. And I joined the National Youth Theatre, and they... With me help because because right. I can't say my L's and my R's very well and I have a bit of a stammer. So they said that I would be the worst actor in the world, <laughs> and I concurred. And I thought, well, I better be a writer then. Can you say some Cow. <laughs> <laughs> so the word cow wasn't going to be the word. But then, uh, so, uh, what's, so, 
be a theatrical suicide, and he would still write me a bad review, and it wouldn't really be a very sensible idea. But no, I'm, I, 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 I'm a fairly bad critic of my work. I mean, I, I, it's difficult, and you, you can't relax with it. I mean, I, I've seen Dalek a few times, but only because I have to. Because <laughs> you have to, you can yeah. sick of it, though. Well, I, I've done a few live commentaries and things that um, mention some yeah. things, and so I, that's, I, I won't watch it otherwise, I just have to watch it and talk over it, and it's quite funny. So. How did you first get into writing with Doctor Who? Was it the big finish stuff, or was it the yeah, um, stuff? Yeah, I, I, I did a fanzine when I was a kid, but I never wrote fiction. Like, what I wrote was just awful, bad, badly written reviews of Peter Davison stories that were on at the time, which I just told the story and just said, no, I didn't like it at the end of it. I mean, I, I, I was a, it was a really crap fanzine, actually. You can see it on eBay, it's called Cloister Bell, and it's rubbish. And um, I just, I was dreadful. And I, and I tried with these things I'd never even seen, which was quite common at the time. I, wrote, I remember writing a, a review of, of The Smugglers that was broadcast four years before I was born, and it's obviously not in the archive. So I don't know how I wrote a review of it. I based it upon the, the paragraph in the Jean Marc Officier program guide. I said, oh, it's probably boring. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so when did you decide to kind of move into uh, fiction? Like, did you just think I'll just give it a go? I just began writing drama uh, in the 80s, and I was mainly a theatre writer, and I moved into radio and then into television. And, but Doctor Who was that something I took particularly seriously until, I mean, Big Finish one day gave me a call and said, I write this new audio range. And, and Virgin had asked me to write a book for them, but I said no, because I, I, I can't write prose very well. So I've never been able to get a novel out. But I thought, well, I could probably write an audio drama. So I wrote a few of those, and I think that's where, I know that's what got me the TV series. Was that one day, actually, it was, it was one of those really weird things, because when the new series was announced, I never dreamt. I was just pleased with the back, but being a fan, I thought, great, I'll be able to watch it. So um, did you kind of pitch yourself? Did you kind of write in and say, yeah, no, you can't it, it, it's, it's, it's a strange right. thing. I, I just changed agents, and I'd been working for the last six months on this dreadful BBC series called Ball and Bread, which I hope you've never seen, but, but has now been cancelled, which is such a shame because it was such a fun show to work on. And um, I had said to my agent when I just joined her, I said, I'm never going to do serious television again. I'll never write for a television show which I'm not creating. And then Doctor Who came back, and I had this phone call from her. I was on a bus in London. She just said, look, I've had this call for to, you to do on the show. And I said, um, yeah, I don't want to do them. And she said, well, I've sort of told them probably no, but it's something called Doctor Who. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> she said, and apparently you're writing, I think you might want to do it actually, because it's getting some good writers on board. And it's, it's episode six you're doing, and you're bringing back the Daleks? <laughs> and you were on the phone going... And I said, yeah, and I, I was on the bus. And I said, and, 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 and you said no. And she said, well, I've told them probably not. And I said, no, no. And I said, give them a call anyway. Um, and of course, I, was, you know, and I wanted to dance down the arse of the bus, but they arrested you for that. Moment. So, uh, <laughs> exactly. I really thought that I wouldn't, you know. I mean, the other thing was that the first time I ever met Russell and Julie and Phil and Helen was at that first meeting after we'd been commissioned. So I had this awful thing, I'd go into the meeting, and they'd say, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean you. And they'd say, oh. The other option. But no, I, just, I, I never dreamt of pitching, because I never thought I'd get it. It was that odd thing that, and also no one could pitch, and no one still can pitch. I mean, Russell so, will give you a call and say, right, it's time for your dialogue story. So your work just spoke for itself then, somebody just saw it and thought, wow, that's Yeah, and that, again, that's also the worries that normally in TV, 
you go for tons of meetings because people can't stand the idea of working for you, you know, in, in a small room in the BBC for nine months if they can't, you know, if they don't want to get on with you, it's going to be horrible. So normally you go through meeting after meeting after meeting in which you try and persuade them that, that you're not actually either someone who can't write or a git. And then they will say, all right, you can write for us, for us here. But I was already commissioned before I met then, any of them. And that's actually quite frightening because you go and meet Russell, who is this so six foot seven camp Welshman, and he just hugs you. <laughs> and you think, well, if I now just push you out again off, you can't get rid of me. Actually, they probably could have stacked me. Maybe. But they did. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? The... Yeah, he's, he's a big presence, Russell. Is he, is he, he like that? overwhelming, actually? <laughs> Is he anything like his image? You know, yeah. Camp guy. Yeah. Fun and he's, all that. Or is he a that, great? That, that's all Russell is. He's just a big camp guy who likes Doctor Who. That's all he is. He's, yeah. and, and he's not here. So. <laughs> I think we'd know if he was here, wouldn't we? Well, the thing about Russell, I mean, I've still got his texts on my mobile and his emails because, you know, being Doctor Who, I'm not going to ever lose those. <laughs> so but they just, but they, but they sound like the way he is. On the television, he goes, Hooray! It's like, marvellous, Alex! That whole first meeting with, with Russell and Julie and Phil was basically saying, You've got to be doing about the Daleks! And then he's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because I'm from London, I said, Yeah. They're like rubber balls or something. Yeah. Well, they're also big and Welsh. And all, and all of them are just bouncing off the wall. He just said, Yeah, Daleks. And you're standing there going, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think I'll do that for you. And, and, and I think that they were a bit concerned I was a little bit taking it too much in my stride. You know, I wasn't going, yeah, because I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm from Surrey. I can't do that. That's okay. Don't worry. Everybody in Wales is like that. I mean, Are they? Yeah, actually, it's the weirdest thing. You would go to the BBC and you'd have meetings in London and in Cardiff. And in London, you'd go up to reception and you'd say, hello, I'm here for Doctor Who meeting. And they'd go, no, you're not. And you say, ah, I haven't no, I don't think so. I don't think there's a meeting today. I said, no, there is. I said, yeah, well, I don't care if there is, really. you know, you can't, can't, can't you leave the building. I mean, seriously, I got that. And, they, and, I, and I said, no, I'm really got a meeting. I said, no, there's nothing down. Could you leave, please? And they thought I was an extra from casualty. Seriously, they thought I was actually trying to get so I could audition for casualty. They, they said that. They said, well, the extras for casualty, mate, are over there. Don't try any of this, because we've had this from the morning. I said, no, I'm really, I'm writing a Dalek story. They said, don't care, mate. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you go to Cardiff, and you know, Cardiff don't make television programmes. They hadn't before. You go into the, I mean, I shouldn't say that, but they, no, they, they, you, know, you go into BBC Wales, and they, and they go, hello, at reception. You say, hello. Are you really? You're doing your Well done, Marvellous. <laughs> yeah, right. Have you really a meeting or what? The third quarter, I'll give them a call. How, how exciting. And everything's exciting for them. And you, and you get in the lift at BBC Wales. And the, the head of BBC Wales has got his old daughter to do the lift announcements. <laughs> and so it says in Welsh and in English, Fair floor. He's not that. <laughs> Yeah, well, but, but they're so excitable. I mean, it's like they've never even seen a television before. They go, oh, it's a box, and we just come out. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was the most fun. 
because they were all, I mean, even if you go to a meeting, which they basically just said, your script's rubbish, hooray! It was always inspiring because Russell was always happy. I mean, he always made you feel, even if he was saying, even if when they said to you, things like, guess what, we've lost the Daleks, do a new episode, hooray! They made you feel quite good about it, like it was, it was an achievement. But actually, I had to bin your script. Back to the drawing board, that'd be fun, won't it? The opportunity for you. Right? So, <laughs> thanks. But, uh, but, but, that, that is good, isn't it? And they'd say, yes, it is. And so, you know, you'd always be cheerful. I'll tell you, I'll just let you talk now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, uh, right, okay. Um, what restrictions did they place on you when you had, you knew you had the episode of Dalek, you knew the Daleks were in it? Yeah. Uh, were there specific things you were told you cannot do? No. In fact, that was part of the difficulty, is that, I mean, I. Because we had all heard rumours, but when they did Randall and Hot Deceased a few years ago, there was this big problem because it was going out at 7pm as well. And you, you, know, you can't show death. That was a new BBC guideline. They don't want death on the screen willy-nilly. And, and I was concerned because I thought, well, I'm doing this Dalek story and it's not going to kill anybody, it's going to maim them or something. <laughs> and they said, oh, no, 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 try it. And so, but every draft you would give, they would say things like, we could probably put a bit more horror in after my first draft. It's great. So I went away on my second draft and I killed everybody. <laughs> and in fact, that, that whole sequence, because I had right from the beginning, I wanted to have that sync plunger thing where it, and but it wasn't it was much more graphic than that, the version I wrote, and it was much scary though. But it had it was the plunger went out and the rubber enveloped his head and it grew over his head and it picked him up still screaming and threw him around a bit, threw him against the wall, he fell down, his face had burnt off to a skull. And, <laughs> and this was very This was draft two. This draft one I just didn't put any death in. And Russell just said, what are you doing to my show? I said, I don't know. He said, what? He said, not this. So it was, it was trying to sort of go back and forth a bit. I mean, it, it was, we, we really didn't know. And that's, that's the hardest thing about it, because at least now they do know series two and series three. We didn't know who it was for. I mean, you go to different meetings and we, you know, some of them say, well, we don't know, maybe it's for eight-year-olds. And then they'd say, no, actually it's for adults. And so you try and redress your draft according to how people in the meeting spoke to you last time. The finished version was pretty graphic, I thought. And actually it really so worried me because, I mean, I, I was watching Aliens Quantum and World War III. In fact, I'd seen them, but Dive had just been made. And I just thought, I've got this completely wrong. I mean, they have made Dive now, so they can't change yeah. it, but I just thought it was the wrong tone. But I don't think we ever really knew what, what the tone was, and I think that I got a bit scared therefore, you know, when, when in that week building up to Dark, I just thought, what if the audience just say that isn't actually what we've been there to believe with, that the show is? Yeah. Yeah. But, but then Stephen Moffat came over to my house the night Dark aired with a video of Empty Child, and we watched it together. And Stephen actually went white, he just said, I've gone too far. This is the scene where yeah. Richard, happened with Richard Wilson. Yeah. He said, I wouldn't let my kids watch that. And, yeah. and, and it was that sort of awkward thing about not really knowing how far. Yeah. Yeah. But Russell just said, go away and write an episode. I mean, it really was a, very much a clean slate. And then they'd give you notes. But, but there were no restrictions. I mean, I was told to introduce Adam, right. that, that loser companion. And I was told to bring back the dice and, and base it on Jubilee. But I could do pretty much whatever I wanted within that. Were you told just to have one Dalek? Well, that was always the commission. Was that deliberate? Like but that was always. But that was because I'd done that in the Jubilee. Oh, right. Big finish right. audio, and they commissioned me because they wanted me to adapt that. They thought it was very clever that because they knew they were going back on that at the end of the series. Yeah. Obviously, they said, "Let's set it up so the introductory story has this yeah. one final Dalek, right. and we'll make them believe that 
that's the last one. And I said, yeah, great. So it was always going to just be well done. Okay. And you got to go down on the set and actually meet the girl. Yes, and I hugged it. Uh, yes, I, <laughs> I remember well, that, yeah. yeah. In front well, of people or in a quiet corner? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, the thing is, is that why everyone told me about it? Because they were going to shout It's that sort of odd thing, you go on the set. And I, I find as a writer going on the set anyway is quite scary because, well, you, you don't want actors like you to say things like, as has happened to writers I know, and say, these words are rubbish. Can you say, oh, thank you. Because, because, because you always feel actually there are any problems on set, it's because of something you wrote which isn't easy to film. Yeah. So, every, so every delay seems to be your fault. So I spent only two days on I couldn't take more than two days on set because it just makes me nervous. But I went on and, I, and the Dalek, I was, at, I was at university with the chap who was in Sucker Dalek, so he just, Burning himself up a few times. It was the scene where it revives and the electricity comes back oh, right. and it shoots yeah. things, and so yeah. they had to blow everything up around him. Barney had to wear a sock over his head because otherwise he could be seen through it, and he was scared out of his mind by that. And it was so, so I went into this room just full of wreckage, and there was this Dalek sitting there, and everyone was cameras and said, So could you hug it? And I said, Yeah, I'll well, Go on, might never happen again. But I didn't want to, because it was really scary. I mean, I know it sounds stupid, but actually, this big, robust thing is actually very intimidating. Well, right? I used to laugh at them on television, and then we, we picked up a, a, a life-size replica of Dalek uh, for a, an event a couple of years ago. And yeah. I had it in my living room for about a week. And it's weird, he's sitting there at like 7 o'clock at night, out the corner of your eye. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah, and I you felt that. I mean, Billy never, he didn't even know what they so were. So do you want one yourself? No. No. Russell's got one in his room. I mean, yeah. I mean, I had to. It, it was actually. It was. The, it was the nastiest thing. When when we lost the Daleks, and I had about a month to write another episode, I went over to his house in Manchester and chatted about it because it was an emergency meeting. Right. And you ring the doorbell and he opens up the door and you say, "This full size Dalek." It's, it's like he was mocking me, saying, "Yeah, you're not writing for me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You've lost the right. Write <laughs> another monster, you get." And so. Um, <laughs> So I kicked it really hard when Russell wasn't looking. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but Russell's got a full size guy. I, I, I was sent one of those talky things, and it scares my cat. Because my cat loves my bedroom. Um, Right. My, my uh, writing bedroom, the bedroom I write in. You have a writing bedroom? Yeah, because, you know, because I worked about three or four in the morning some. If I'm actually really writing hard, then Jane, my, my wife, says, you can use your other bedroom tonight. So I, and, and that's where my cat likes to go. So I put the Dalek on top of the wardrobe, and I can press the button if he's in there, and, it, and he runs away. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you can put them on a, you know, yeah, 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 great little talking Dalek, aren't you? Because you can just, if something's on the phone, you don't like them, you just put the Dalek on. Yeah, I've never tried doing that, though, man. Have you? No, because you I'm, must try it, right? I'm not as nuts as you. But perhaps I'll do that, yeah. I think he might be as nuts as me. What do you think? Yeah. No, he's a writer. He spends a lot of time in a dark room by himself. Well, I don't meet people ever. I mean, actually, this is a real, you know, I've never seen so many people in one place before. It's normally they only see one or two people, and they're usually muscle. Yeah, it's just, you know, big camp well, he is a lot of people in one person. He's enormous. He's so big. Six yeah, it's a good word for it, isn't it? Yeah, it just yeah. doesn't show. I mean, yeah. it's hard to imagine. I know. It's, 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 um, right, so you're on the set, so yes. I'm assuming you met uh, Mr. Eccleston? I, I met Chris several times, but not actually doing Dalek. Oh, um, right, right. Chris, yeah, I, mean, I met him during Aliens of London 
most stuff. I suppose what most and people are into charm, but I didn't think actually on the balance end. What most people are really intrigued by though is that um, yes, he he left after one season for whatever yeah. reason. Fine, he's a working yeah. actor. I think a lot of people are really curious now as to where is he? What does he think of being an ex Doctor Who? And uh, um, would he ever appear at a convention? He's he's a very shy man. That's Paul McGann. I can't. Uh, I think this is that he's he was quite keen to see it as something. But he really threw himself. Oh yeah. yeah. Pardon me. Into it for nine months. And he really tried. And he, and he was very excited by it. But I think it, it's that odd thing. He doesn't want to intrude upon David. Right. And he, he feels very much that, and he said to me, I think it's actually the hardest thing for him was that, that the news of his leaving early leaked so early. And, yeah. he, and he wrote me an email and he said, the hardest thing is I've been Doctor Who now for three days, and that's it. Yeah. Because I was introduced on Saturday, and now it's Tuesday, I'm yeah. never Doctor Who. And I, and I don't want Dave, you know, because I mean, David was pretty much known at that stage he'd been doing it. I mean, he leaked that leaked as well. And he said, I don't want now to spoil David's fun. So once day was, was, was announced and they announced him, when was that? It, it, it was shortly after Dalek went out because I remember my Dalek press launch, all I was asked about was, are they going to cast David Tennant? And I couldn't say yes because I'd have been, I don't know. It's funny, isn't it? You get Chris Rackleston, who uh, I assume is not a big Doctor Who fan. No, he is. He's only ever watched it. He's he, 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 kind of he, he has watched it since. Yeah, he watched yeah. Towns of Wayne Cheyenne. Oh, right. Do you know who that's what it is? Whereas David Tennant is just the eagle of the Chris was funny because Chris would try. Chris came up to me at the read through for Empty Child and said to me, he said, Do you know? He said, You know that that chap in Mine or Mine, Russell's other series at the time, the dad, John Scott Martin, said, Yeah. And he, he said, is the grandfather of the guy who played the Dalek voice for us, Nick Briggs. And he did Dalek voices. In the 60s, and I said, no, no, no. John Scott Martin was inside the Daleks in the 70s. Peter Hawkins was doing the Dalek in the 60s, and Nick Bridges didn't notice him at all. He said, I'm oh, crap at this. I said, yeah. <laughs> Interesting stuff, and we'll hear more from that interview in future podcasts. To round off our Halloween podcast, Simon has asked that I record some Victoriana. So this is my take on the classic Halloween poem, The Raven. Hope you enjoy it. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, tapping at my chamber door. "'Only this, and nothing more. "'Ah, distinctly I remember, it was in the bleak December, "'and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. "'Eagerly I wished the morrow. "'Vainly I had sought to borrow from my book surcease of sorrow, "'sorrow for the lost Lenore, "'for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, "'nameless here for evermore.' And the silken, sad, uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now to the still beating of my heart I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more.' 
Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir, said I, or madam, truly, your forgiveness I implore. But the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming, dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before. But the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping, somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice, let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore, let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore, tis the wind and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when, with many a flirt and flutter, in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mane of lord or lady perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore. Though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly, grim, and ancient raven wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Much I marvelled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as Nevermore. But the raven sitting lonely on the placid bust spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour. Nothing farther than he uttered, not a feather than he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before. On the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store. Caught from some unhappy master, whose unmerciful disaster Followed fast and followed faster, till his songs one burden bore, Till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore, Of never, never more. But the raven still beguiling all my fancy into smiling, Straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and boston door. Then upon the velvet sinking I betook myself to linking Fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er, she shall press, ah, nevermore. 
Then methought the air grew denser, perfumed from an unseen censer, swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore. Quaff, oh quaff this kind nepenthe, and forget this lost Lenore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore. Desolate yet all undaunted, on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore. Is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul, with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden, it shall clasp a sainted maiden, whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden, whom the angels name Lenore. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. Be that word our sign of parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting, get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul hath spoken, leave my loneliness unbroken, quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart, and take thy form from off my door. Quoth the raven, Nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon's that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadows on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Thanks for listening everyone, I hope you've enjoyed it. Our next edition will focus on actors and actresses that have passed on recently, so please do join us then. The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.